As the Jefferson family celebrates its bicentennial year, insert celebratory party music and woohoo cheers here, the Nexus podcast has decided to take a look at the university's famous firsts, be they locally, nationally, or internationally. Jefferson has improved lives in the region going into its third century in so very many ways. The 10 Jefferson firsts that we selected for this episode stand out as important guideposts for Jefferson's growth and history. In this episode of the Nexus Podcast, we spoke with a wide variety of experts within the enterprise to hone in and get their thoughts on groundbreaking advances that went out into the great big world. Some you might know about already. Others, yeah, they'll come as a surprise. Let's start at the very beginning in 1824, when Jefferson became the first medical college in the country to open a clinic for the poor and made it the first college clinic in the United States. That, of course, was the precursor to Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. We spoke to both the newly arrived dean of Sidney Kimmel Medical College and the long-standing university archivist about that. My name is Michael Angelo. I am the university archivist. I've been here for about 22 years. Jefferson Medical College, now Sidney Kimmel Medical College, was founded in 1824. That's when our charter was given to us by Jefferson College in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, we became the medical department of Jefferson College. The lease was signed December 30th, 1824, to establish a building to house the medical college in, and that was located at Washington Square. As early as May of 1825, the faculty had established a clinic for indigent poor people to come receive surgical and medical care. Students who actually were not even enrolled at that time, but 110 students attended these clinical sessions inside the college. That was totally unique because most students at the University of Pennsylvania and other established schools went to Pennsylvania Hospital. They did not have their own clinic in their own college. So this was very convenient for students. It also served the poor clientele right in the area of Washington Square. So it had a double purpose and even a triple purpose if you consider that some of the faculty appointed students to stay at bedside with post-operative patients under the faculty instruction. It really became a teaching tool that was very unique and the first in the United States. Why was this such a great thing for Philadelphia and the country at the time? At that time, medical school was a two-year program. The first year was a series of lectures. The second year was the same series of lectures in hopes that something would stick with the students. There was no medical licensure. You could practice without a diploma. It was a really wild time for patients to find a doctor with real training. So this clinical training inside the college with students learning and observing was magnificent. These students were very well prepared in comparison with the other students who just took lecture notes and attended some clinics at the Pennsylvania Hospital. So it was a big advantage. By 1890, Johns Hopkins had created the same system, but we had been doing it for 60 years or something like that. That legacy resonates with Dr. Saeed Ibrahim, who recently took over the reins as dean of Sidney Kimmel Medical College. Dr. Ibrahim himself represents a Jefferson first, that being the first black dean of that college. 
This means a lot to me because if you really think about it, medicine as a profession has been undergoing great deal of change in the United States in the last 200 years. On one hand, medical knowledge has exploded. So now we can do things that we have never been able to do. We offer people treatments that people in the 1800s couldn't even dream about. We have extended life expectancy for Americans and actually globally because of the discoveries of medicine and science. But one of the most enduring challenge of medicine has been making sure that what we offer is available to everybody, regardless of people's socioeconomic status. One of the most important missions of medicine as a service to humanity is that we have to make sure that the treatments that are available to the well-off are also available to the not-so-well-off. Jefferson has to be the leader in that mission of making sure that as we progress and we become fancier and more sophisticated, we don't leave behind those who are unfortunate and unable to access those things. I think that Jefferson's next 200 years needs to build on that history and make sure that's what guides us in what we do. Dr. Steve Herron, Vice Dean for Undergraduate Medical Education and an alum of Sydney Kimmel Medical College, also took some time to discuss the impacts of that legacy. There's a couple of legacies, I believe, from that early establishment. First, the engagement with the community is something that Jefferson is well known for. Our students strive for. It's a big attraction for those that apply to our medical school, and there are many. That emphasis and importance and support for community engagement really describes us. Certainly, Jefferson has that in its early DNA, and we value that and want to continue that legacy. The other has to do with clinical exposure. Jefferson grads are known around the country as being ready to go when they finish school here. They're seen as excellent clinicians. Sure, we train scientists, leaders, thinkers, policymakers, but ultimately what we're known for and what we are proud of is we train really excellent physicians, clinical physicians. And anyone who graduates from our medical college has that in their background, can be fully confident of those skills. And we are known for that and will continue that as long as I have a say. And I believe that I'm not alone in valuing that part of our identity. Do you feel as if the students recognize that coming in, as if that's something that draws them here? I think it does attract the students. Our admissions process is rather unique in that it is very student-centered. The students are involved in the admissions committee. They are part of the program when prospective students visit. So clearly that will come out in those conversations between the applicants and the existing students. What does that history mean moving forward? The only thing that stays stable is the rate of change around here and in medicine in general. But as long as we understand our history and our legacy and the importance of the human aspects of medicine, then we'll be true to that history. Doctoring ultimately is an interaction that's based in science, but is also strongly based in relationships, humanities, history, cultural awareness, and cultural humility. And we consciously train our students to understand all of that and hopefully bring it to their practice going forward. Jefferson's experts went on to establish a lot of famous firsts in the ensuing years. Among those was Dr. John Mankey Riggs, who, in 1846, became the first medical professional to use anesthesia to perform dental surgery. Michelangelo, the archivist, offers some insightful details about that accomplishment. 
not only was he the first to administer nitrous oxide in a surgical setting, being dental care, he removed the tooth of Horace Wells, another doctor. This was experimental. It was dangerous. Horace Wells could have died and Riggs could have been imprisoned for killing a patient with this experimental procedure. But it was very successful and Horace Wells went on to promote anesthesia and eventually went to Boston, where he encouraged faculty at Massachusetts General Hospital to do this with a major surgery, not only dental surgery. Riggs was interesting, too, because he's really the world's first periodontist. There's something called Riggs disease, which is a gum disease, and he created techniques and tools to improve dental care for patients. He also was preventive medicine. That was his big thing, which we all have to practice now a couple of times a day with our toothbrushes. So we can thank him for that. That was a really big game changer for patients who don't like feeling pain during procedures. Absolutely. Dr. Thomas D. Mutter was the head of surgery here at Jefferson, 1846, just a few weeks after the first serious surgery in Boston occurred with ether anesthesia. He introduced it here in Philadelphia on December 9th, 1846. We have the exact date because we know when he was teaching surgical classes to students. So it's pretty cool. We really were foremost in this major change in healthcare in the world. Another formative first which established Jefferson in the 19th century has its roots in the 1876 Centennial Exposition. Specifically, Jefferson, aka Philadelphia University, aka the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, has its East Falls roots in local textile manufacturers noticing that the Philadelphia industry tailed its rivals' capacity, technology, and ability. In 1880, they formed the Philadelphia Association of Manufacturers of Textile Fabrics, with Theodore C. Search as its president. Search joined the board of directors of the Philadelphia Museum and School of Industrial Art, now known as the Philadelphia Museum of Art and University of the Arts, thinking they were perfect partners for his plans for the school. In 1884, Search taught the first classes at the Philadelphia Textile School, which officially opened on November 5, 1884. Search instructed five students in textile mill bookkeeping in an evening class. That student quintet laid the initial groundwork for the first textile school in America. Weighing in on the importance of that is Dr. Susan Aldridge, the university's first ever female interim president, Marsha Weiss, who is director of the Fashion and Textiles Futures Center, and Michelangelo. We'll start with Marsha. Certainly, we are known for our legacy in textiles. There is this wealth of innovation that has always existed in our DNA, and that creates more opportunities for our students and for our alums. What we know is if a company is looking for innovation in textiles and or collaborative opportunities, they're going to come talk with us because we do that and do that incredibly well. That's a testament to the East Falls campus, to our DNA, and to the way that our administration really leads this institution. We stand on the shoulders of these amazing people that have come before us. We're incredibly fortunate to be able to share those stories, but also to chart a new path. The things that our students are interested in are really about the opportunities to change the world. They're not interested in making pretty things. They're interested in making things that are desirable, yes, but also how can they be more truly environmentally sustainable? How can they be circular as they look at a circular economy? What are the opportunities for extending and expanding knowledge when they work across disciplines? They each come in with their own perspective. And when they share that with others, it becomes a really wonderfully rich experience. Do you get the sense that students 
incoming students particularly recognize the legacy as they're coming in? Especially at the undergraduate level, what students see is a really interesting opportunity is the collaboration across disciplines. They're interested in being this and that, not just this. They're interested in multiple disciplines. They're interested in those points of intersection. When they step on campus for new student orientation as first-year students, we're getting questions about what are the opportunities for dual majors? What are the opportunities for minors? What are the opportunities to do a bachelor's and a master's degree in perhaps a related discipline? We also have been told that from students when they come to open house sessions is that they sense amongst our students this collaborative community of makers. And that's part of what attracts them to us. Ensure we have beautiful facilities and we have amazing equipment from analog hand equipment all the way up through state-of-the-art technology. And that's wonderful. That gives our students the tools they need. But it's really the community and the way our students work with one another and with members of the industry. That's what I think attracts students to us. Dr. Aldrich also notes that that intersection, better known as Jefferson's Nexus Learning Approach, is key to the university's success as well as building on the textile's legacy. The textile's legacy has really been extraordinary and it continues to impact and influence us today. The textile legacy really provided uh, a solid foundation for the textile industry in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, but it also creates a solid foundation for our future as well. When we established the first academic programs and degrees in the field, we were addressing key workforce needs in the textile industry in the Philadelphia area. But today we're building on that legacy. Today we're producing high performance material used for making gloves for NASA's astronauts as they perform spacewalks. So we're building on our legacy, but we're leading to the future. Our students are going to work in interdisciplinary and global environments. So Jefferson's rich history of interdisciplinary curriculum, student projects, research, provide a learning environment where our students think more broadly. They understand how other disciplines can benefit their outcomes. The world that our students are entering is really cross-disciplinary. The world in which our research needs to be conducted is interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. So from medical research to business to design to fashion to architecture law, all of these areas, we're providing our students with unique opportunities to collaborate. They're collaborating on designing products in healthcare to address patient needs. They're designing projects in fashion design, industrial design and business, and they're learning learning from each other in these unique formats that is unique to Jefferson. I think we've really done a magnificent job thinking carefully about these interdisciplinary approaches, not just in business, marketing, finance, but across these disciplines and also with medicine and industrial design and medicine and architecture to really think about solving wicked problems of the future, but designing our communities, designing products, and solving problems for the future. It's difficult to pinpoint any of a number of firsts which emanated from textiles establishment. Of note, however, is in 1902, the U.S. Army turned to the Philadelphia Textile School to create olive drab colored uniforms, 
which were less visible from afar and thus suited for modern fighting. Fun fact, the shade was picked because someone noticed the protective coloring of a quail and feathers were then blended with the wool. This is similar in spirit to textile experts helping create, in 1965, a synthetic hand tendon well before the Jefferson merger. Michelangelo also took some time to discuss how the synthetic hand tendon collaboration came to be. Dr. James Hunter was a graduate of Jefferson Medical College. He was very interested in orthopedic surgery and became the chair of the orthopedic department specializing in hand surgery. People from all over the country would come here. Some famous pianists came and he helped rehabilitate them through surgery. In 1965, he was really trying to create a synthetic tendon that would not be rejected by the patient from the hand through the wrist into the lower arm. He had to find somebody who had some expertise in synthetic materials and lo and behold, he reached across town to East Falls to the College of Textiles and Sciences. Two of their faculty were very excited about the project. They worked together and they created this remarkable, very first synthetic tendon, which was improved upon over the years. But 1965 was the year that they published that information and helped their first patient. Among the more widely known Jefferson firsts, according to Michelangelo, is Dr. John H. Gibbon conceiving of and developing the world's first successful heart-lung machine. I enjoy telling it again and again because it's a major thing that happened in the world. 1953, May 6th, the very first open-heart machine-assisted cardiac surgery, successful surgery, occurred at Jefferson, right on the sixth floor of the college building on Walnut Street. Dr. John H. Gibbon, a graduate of 1927, worked for 30 years in creating a machine which could bypass the heart action and the lung action, respiratory action, into a machine so the patient could survive major heart surgery. This was really a medical miracle. He did not take a patent on it. He shared the designs. He had a whole research team at Jefferson, including buy-in from the head of IBM. IBM engineers came to campus all the time helping develop went through three different iterations. And finally, he shared the designs with the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Gibbon really should have won the Nobel Prize for 1953, but there were other people who were like discovering DNA, double helix, and creating vaccines for viruses at that time. So it was a very busy, exciting time in modern history in the 20th century. Is there any record of him discussing why he didn't take the patent rights? I think the reason was that he really just wanted to share this with the world. It would have been selfish and closed-minded, and he was one of those doctors trained at Jefferson who really felt ethically responsible to patients everywhere. That's not the first time a Jeffersonian refused patent rights. Getting back to anesthesia, we had a graduate in the 19th century, Dr. Edward Squibb of Squibb Pharmaceutical, Squibb Myers, who perfected the machine to purify sulfuric ether for anesthesia. Him being a Quaker, he felt that was something that he had to give the world. Once again, there's a tradition here of not making money off of uh, patients' lives. In keeping with medical advances, Jefferson firsts also include Dr. George Gould inventing the cemented bifocal eyeglass lens and, years later, Dr. Solomon Solis-Cohen being the first to use epinephrine to relieve hay fever and asthma. The latter work set up a path for the creation of the modern-day EpiPen. Dr. George Gould graduated from the medical college in 1888. He did a number of very famous things among them. was He invented the first cemented bifocal eyeglass 
glass lenses. It made it very convenient to produce it and much cheaper than previously, where they had to grind the single lens into two different lenses. Solis Cohen, he's a graduate of 1893, very interested in allergies, very interested in respiratory problems. He experimented with various drugs to help severely allergic patients, and he used epinephrine, which is still used today in the EpiPen. And he, in fact, suggested there should be a way that patients can treat themselves without having to go to the physician for an emergency epinephrine injection. So that led to the EpiPen, which, as we know, saved lots of lives. In a fun fact that could ultimately bring about a Wikipedia edit, Jefferson in 1971 established what's thought to be the first heliport airlift program in the Delaware Valley. That Wikipedia reference emanates from the fact that another university boasts of doing this first, but in 1972. That year, construction of a heliport atop the Fodorer Pavilion was designed to serve the intensive care nursery and quote-unquote facilitate transportation of these high-risk newborns during the first critical hours of life. Today, JeffStack continues to lead the way in more efficient, safe, and swift service to emergency care. We talked to Michael Angelo for the historical view and Kevin Kleinschmidt for detail of how JeffStack works today. The Fordware building, which is on the corner of 11th and Walnut Street, was built in 1952-1953. It has a flat roof, which is very convenient. But the hospital personnel had been talking about getting a medical transport air service. And I have to say, in 1971, I I have not been able to find any earlier heliport hospital service than ours. So this may be the first in the United States. It was very new. In 1972, I think Colorado had a hospital air transport service. It was first designed to serve intensive care nursery to facilitate transportation of high-risk newborns during the first critical hours of life. It evolved into more generalized trauma surgery care with burn victims. And every day when we hear that hospital helicopter come overhead, we're all grateful that it exists and really hope for the patients. Kevin Kleinschmidt is the director of the Jeff Stat Critical Care Transport Team, Jefferson Transfer Center, and the Jeff Stat Education Center. In addition to the bicentennial, he noted that the Jeff Stat Ground Program turns 25 this year. He spoke about that growth and evolution. As JeffStat's flight team really expanded, a lot of it was around the neuro patients that we take care of through the Jefferson Neuroscience Network and really making sure that those patients had quick access to tertiary care and quaternary care centers for neuro specialties. At one point, our flight volume was overwhelmingly neuro patients and any kind of stroke or head bleed or anything like that, those patients would need to come into the city. Because of the time, the acuity of those patients and the speed at which those patients need care, flight was obviously the correct type of transporter and correct modality of transport. As that started to grow, we really turned towards bringing Jefferson Care to the bedside on acute patients, on very critical patients, and really morphed JeffStat into two types of modalities. You have the flight side and the ground side of JeffStat. And the ground side is really bringing Jefferson Care to the bedside of, of patients that need it. So a patient can be at a community facility or, or another facility that's non-Jefferson or a Jefferson community center for that matter. And we can bring the, the tertiary care that patient needs to them and start any kind of stabilizing care or improving patient care 
at that time. Basically, every four weeks, our nurses and paramedics go on the ambulance, and then the other three weeks, they're on the helicopters transporting patients. So it's the same level of care you get, whether it's flight or ground for us. Our volume, at one point, I said, was overwhelmingly neurology patients and has really morphed into the entire body from cardiology, neurology, trauma, any type of patient now Jeff that can handle. We do still transport neonates and, and the newborns and have the ability to move those folks, but it really took wings and expanded out quite a bit. While we reached out to discuss the university's textiles legacy with Dr. Ronald Kander, Dean of the Canbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce, an interesting nugget surfaced about how Jefferson First can be found in the very name of the college. The formation of Canbar College in 2011 was a first. We were the first university in the nation to combine business, design, and engineering curriculum in a single college at both the undergraduate and graduate level. Nobody in the world had done it. How did that come to be? Maurice Canbar. Maurice's spin had always been the best products in the world are desirable, valuable, and feasible. And when he designed products, he always made sure he had a designer on the team that knew how to find out what a customer wanted and needed and made it desirable. He always had an engineer on the team that said, how do you reduce that to practice, materials, technologies, processes? And then he had business professionals on the team that would say, great, but what's the business model that would make this a sustainable business? The idea of designers, engineers, and business professionals having to speak the same language to do product design and development was his concept. And then Steve Spinelli executed that into a full-blown college and not just a program. Was that the genesis of the Nexus learning approach? Yes, that was where the Nexus learning approach came out of, yes. And then it became a university level, Bernice Falls, Philly U level philosophy. And then of course, after the merger became a Jefferson level philosophy. Flash forward to 2016, the College of Health Professions blazed a new path in creating the first medical cannabis center for a major health sciences university. While that field has exploded in recent years, the graduate certificates in cannabis offered by the university still stand out as very distinct. We spoke with Dr. Michael Dreyer, the college's dean, about what it all means. We got involved in the medical cannabis space about six and a half, seven years ago. We got involved in doing a lot of the very early research in the use of medical cannabis and the application, how it could be used broadly. Following that, we began to offer graduate certificates of advanced practice around medical cannabis and different aspects of medical cannabis. Over time, we began to increase the certificates and to look more also at the science of medical cannabis so people could understand the building blocks that lead to the medical use of cannabis. Finally, we introduced a certificate on business of cannabis because it's grown so rapidly rapidly and, and become such an important part of how accessible cannabis has become. After we launched that third certificate, we stacked them and put it into a master's degree, the Master's of Science in Medical Cannabis science and business of cannabis. It puts all three of those domains together. Someone who is really interested in it will understand cannabis from a variety of different perspectives and become an expert in the field. Since this was a new concept, how did we get it established? There is a lot of interest in using cannabis as the medicine for a lot of the different diseases that we were struggling trying to find treatments that would work. 
And so there were a number of illnesses that were being treated with medical cannabis, but it wasn't being done widespread. There was a clearly identified opportunity to use it more broadly. As the research grew and we saw greater and greater application, it became obvious to us that this was an important modality, that it had widespread application, and it's something that Jefferson should be in the lead on. So we move forward with it. What kind of interest have you seen from students? The interest has been very strong. We see a, a mix of students coming to us to learn about this. We have physicians, many nurses, people who are looking to get into the, the business and open a dispensary. It's a wide variety of individuals who have sought us out to build expertise in the area, which is one of the reasons we built the educational programming such that it could cater to a wide group of people and their needs. How much of a source of pride is it to have been on, on the cutting edge of this approach? For us, it's less about pride and more about satisfaction that we were able to provide what people need to provide care to patients. It is really satisfying to know that we're helping to make that more available and make the care better and more effective. That nexus learning approach could be seen more recently in the 2021 creation of the Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities, which is a collaboration between the College of Architecture and the Built Environment, CANBAR, and the College of Population Health. When it was founded in 2008, the College of Population Health was the first of its kind in America. The team hopes to become a world-renowned leader in developing smart and healthy cities in the face of climate change, social inequity, rapid urbanization, and health disparity. The director of the institute is Dr. Edgar Stotch from the College of Architecture and the Built Environment. The merger opened up a tremendous opportunities for researchers and faculty and students to really dive into a much more solid and substantial collaboration. I certainly appreciate the opportunities now to collaborate with experts in the medical field, in population health, in occupational therapy, and in many other disciplines, really to focus on the health of the individual in urban settings in our cities. How difficult would it be to accomplish these sorts of projects at other universities? The Thomas Jefferson University is in a poor position for that kind of interdisciplinary research because we have a very large footprint in the health sector. There are a lot of institutions who do a very fine work in terms of research, but they don't necessarily have the sort of very wide footing. I'm really excited, for example, to, to talk to neural scientists to explore the effects of climate change on our nerve system. These are all aspects you can't necessarily pull off in institutions which do not have a large hospital system in, in the back, back to up. Set goal is to become whether the next three to five years a known entity in the US and a thought leader. It's an ambitious plan. There are big universities and institutions also focusing on smart and healthy cities. But again, talking about our unique situation to a very large healthcare system and, and have access to population health data and dissemination opportunities, hopefully will get us to the next level as a nationally and hopefully internationally recognized institution. Stotch noted that despite the university celebrating its bicentennial, it still retains its nimble agility to take on topics such as these. The Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities is uniquely positioned in the academic ecosystem in the U.S. because of the situation Jefferson offers, having a very large healthcare system, lots of colleges dealing with population health and health-related issues. At the same time, we're really strong in design. 
urban design disciplines in large. And then we have the engineering topics. The engineers can really work on complex engineering issues. That is unique. That was a win situation when we started it. Some of the things we do really made it into very large exhibits. The Venice exhibit was exhibited in Venice and then came back and was again exhibited here in Design Philadelphia. We're getting more and more traction. Jefferson it is 200 years old. It's still a very sort of fresh and young institution, which really explores opportunities and goes after opportunities. So there you have them, 10 of Jefferson's more eye-catching firsts, and that's out of hundreds, mind you. We'd be remiss, however, if we didn't bring this full circle. As mentioned earlier, both doctors Ibrahim and Aldridge represent firsts for the university themselves. To close out this bicentennial episode, we asked each to share their visions for Jefferson's third century of service, as well as advice they'd offer students before they enter the ever-evolving world of work. We'll start with interim president Aldridge. We look at our history with just enormous pride. We stand on the shoulders of pioneers and architects of the industrial age all the way up to the digital age. At Jefferson, we're going to continue our legacy as innovators, and we're going to design the communities, the businesses, the healthcare and products of the next century. Jefferson's innovations and ideas will improve the world. Jefferson is positioning our students and positioning us to really continue our DNA of innovation for the next century. Students who are graduating never want to hear this, but really their education is never finished. We used to talk about lifelong learning. It's true now because the pace of change used to be every 10 to 15 years, there would be major changes. Now it's occurring about every 14 months. And these are new innovations or new ways of thinking or new ways of operating operating that are transforming us at a pace we've never seen before. And that's going to continue that 14-month time of major changes in our life will probably be shortened even more. As you go into the world of work, remember that the pace of change will require upskilling, retooling, refreshing knowledge at some point in time in the future, whether that's coming back for a master's degree, whether it's coming back for a certificate program or a course or professional development opportunity. Opportunities. We hope that Jefferson will be your academic partner for your lifetime and a place where you can obtain current knowledge about what's happening in your field and what's happening in the future. Dr. Ibrahim couldn't be more excited for the future as well. That question came up when I was interviewed for this job because I met six or seven or eight medical students at different sort of stages of their school. One of them asked, if you were to go back today, 20, 30 years back, would you still go to medical school, given all the things that's happening? And I said to them, absolutely, yes. And here's why. Yes, it's true that there has been a little bit of a you know, corporatization of medicine that has really created a, a little bit of distrust between the physicians and their patients, which we have to address. Yes, it's true that there are a lot of physicians and clinicians and nurses who feel burnt out and have a sort of lost the sense of passion for clinical care. But I still think that 
medicine is a, such a profession where you could still make a difference to a large group of people. And also technology is exploding. Our ability to invent new treatments, to use mRNA, to produce vaccines. This is really amazing. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is cure for cancer of all kinds within the next 10 to 15, 20 years. If I were going to medical school, wouldn't I want to be part of that science? This is really a good time to be a medical student. There are so many opportunities, so many different things happening. And if you love science and if you love clinical care, you couldn't be in a better profession, in my opinion. To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Today's interviews were conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening.